For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Hello, everyone. I can actually see people in the room at Lincoln Square. Wonderful. Um, hi, Sophia. I'm very happy to have Sophia DeVita giving the talk this evening. Sophia's our University of Chicago Divinity School intern at Ancient Dragons and Gate. It's an, a noble lineage. We've had several interns from the University of Chicago Divinity School back uh, before the pandemic at, at Irving Park. Uh, Zendo. Um, Sophia is our intern, and she's also now our assistant Tenzo. So thank you for taking that on, Sophia. And I'm very happy to have you give the talk tonight. Please proceed. Thank you. You can all hear me on Zoom all right? Okay. Um, so the topic of this talk tonight is going to be on ordinary emptiness, um, on the ordinary way that we come to experience and encounter emptiness in our daily lives. Um, I'm going to be reading my talk because that's what I know and how I feel most comfortable expressing myself. So I apologize in advance for any awkwardness of form, but I'll do my best. Um, I'm going to be working closely with one text tonight, which is a collection of Thich Nhat Hanh's journals from 1962 to 1966 called Fragrant Palm Leaves. I'll be citing mostly from the first part of this, this book, uh, which is from 1962 to 1963, when he was living in the United States and spending most of his time on the campus at Princeton or in the woods of Medford, New Jersey. The journal entries from these years are shot through with homesickness and deep sadness, as Thich Nhat Hanh reflects on the war that's building at home in Vietnam. The text is structured by this palpable sense of suffering and his raw reflection on these experiences. I want to start with a passage from this section of the journals in which Thich Nhat Hanh describes an experience that he had, that he identifies with a realization of emptiness and what he calls return. This event occurred on October 1st, 1962, when he was visiting a library at Columbia. Yet he recounts it almost three months later, on December 23rd. Most of the students were gone for Christmas break at this time, and he found himself on an empty campus in the New Jersey winter, reflecting on how this simple event had been deeply affecting him for many months. This is the passage. The feeling began shortly before 11 o'clock at night on October 1st. I was browsing on the 11th floor of Butler Library. I knew the library was about to close, and I saw a book that concerned the area of my research. I slid it off the shelf and held it in my two hands. It was large and heavy. I read that it had been published in 1892 and was donated to the Columbia Library the same year. On the back cover was a slip of paper that recorded the names of borrowers and the dates they took it out of the library. The first time it had been borrowed was in 1915. The second time was in 1932. 
I would be the third. Can you imagine? I was only the third borrower on October 1st, 1962. For 70 years, only two other people had stood in the same spot I now stood, pulled the book from the shelf, and decided to check it out. I was overcome with the wish to meet those two people. I don't know why, but I wanted to hug them. But they had vanished, and I too, I will soon disappear. Two points on the same straight line will never meet. I was able to encounter two people in space, but not in time. Still holding the book, I felt a glimmer of insight. I understood that I am empty of ideals, hopes, viewpoints, or allegiances. I have no promises to keep with others. In that moment, the sense of myself as an entity among other entities disappeared. I knew that this insight did not arise from disappointment, despair, fear, desire, or ignorance. A veil lifted silently and effortlessly. That is all. If you beat me, stone me, or even shoot me, everything that is considered to be me will disintegrate. Then what is actually there will reveal itself. Faint as smoke, elusive as emptiness, and yet neither smoke nor emptiness, neither ugly nor not ugly, beautiful yet not beautiful. It is like a shadow on a screen. At that moment, I had the deep feeling that I had returned. When I first read this passage, I had something like my own, perhaps minor experience of emptiness, because reading it brought to my mind so clearly a particular memory. In some ways, the memory seems totally unrelated in content, and yet I have sat thinking about the connection my mind made for a long time. The memory feels like it's one of my oldest. I was a small child, but I'm really not sure how old. The closest I can get is to say that I was old enough to have solid mental representations of where I was and what I had just been doing, but young enough to be sitting in the back of my parents' car in some sort of car seat. It was a hot summer night, and we were driving back from a party at our friend's house. I grew up in the hillside of the Wisconsin River Valley, so the rides between houses were many miles, and this always felt like a particularly long time as a small child. I would lay my head against the window and stare out at the moon and the stars, puzzling over how they seemed to move with the car. On this particular night, I had been staring out the window as usual, but for some reason, I found my hands pressing on my face, feeling the structures of bone beneath my skin, my cheekbones, my jaw, my teeth. There was no deep meaning or reason that had motivated this. It had merely been a mindless action meant to pass the time. Yet in this moment, I had an unexpected and profound realization. While feeling the bones beneath my skin, my mind made the leap to connect what I was touching to an image of a skeleton that I must have seen somewhere. I can remember this impression like it was yesterday. Out of nowhere, the feeling of my cheekbone on my fingers connected directly to this image of a skeleton. And I realized in this moment that I was that skeleton. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about his realization of emptiness as inciting a storm in him, 
and that it marked one of the loneliest moments of his life. He says that this storm, quote, at first seemed like a passing cloud, but after several hours, I began to feel my body turning to smoke and floating away. I became a faint wisp of a cloud. I had always thought of myself as a solid entity, and suddenly I saw that I'm not solid at all. This wasn't a philosophical or even an enlightenment experience. It was just an ordinary impression, completely ordinary. I saw that the entity I had taken to be me was really a fabrication. My true nature, I realized, was much more real, both uglier and more beautiful than I could have imagined. Unquote. Thich Nhat Hanh's description corresponds so closely to the experience I had sitting in the back of my parents' car as a child. At some point, around five or seven years old, I began to have an extremely intense fear of death. I can't say with certainty whether the memory I have of this event was the cause of this fear, since beyond the extremely clear impression I have of that moment, I don't recall much of what came after it, but it seems very likely. The second it would get dark in my room at night and I was supposed to go to sleep, I would begin contemplating death and I would continue thinking about it, completely terrified, until sleep eventually overtook me. Yet, I think that it was not so much death itself that frightened me, but the paradox of eternity and the self. I would sit there thinking, how is it that I am now? How is it that I soon will no longer be? What was I before I was me? What will I be when I'm no longer me? And what does this mean about what I am now? The reason that I feel so connected to the experience that Thich Nhat Hanh recounts is that like him, the moment I had in the car seat as a child was not a passing cloud, but rather the beginning of an intense storm. It was not some intellectual or even non-intellectual clear realization that set me free that I was able to let go of with perfect non-attachment. Instead, it was a completely ordinary impression that took hold of me and stayed with me for a long time. Indeed, even now it stays with me, a perfectly formed memory in the sea of undifferentiated, unthought childhood. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, it was one of the most intense feelings of loneliness I've ever had. After his experience in the library, Thich Nhat Hanh says that he left the bedroom door wide open day and night like a prayer. During this time, he was unable to converse and could only manage manual chores. In my own experience, I was affected by this event for months and maybe even years. This lasting impact that I experienced through an intensely embodied sense of fear and uncertainty cannot be explained rationally. As Thich Nhat Hanh describes it, quote, some life dilemmas cannot be solved by study or rational thought. We just live with them struggle with them, and become one with them. Such dilemmas are not in the realm of intellect. They come from our feelings and our will, and they penetrate our subconscious and our body down to the marrow of our bones. I became a battlefield. I couldn't know until the storm was over if I would survive. Not in the sense of my physical life, but in the deeper sense of my core self. Unquote. What I like so much about this teaching, which perhaps can hardly be called a teaching since it was written in his personal journal, is that it makes real and palpable to me our ordinary experiences of emptiness, 
interconnection, and return. What Thich Nhat Hanh describes is not something that is reached only at the height of meditation or at the sought-after moment in which the mind finally extinguishes the ego once and for all. Instead, this encounter with emptiness is brought on by an entirely ordinary experience. Even further, this ordinary experience is accompanied not by some lasting clarity and simplicity, but rather by a great struggle, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls a storm. For me, this made many of the things that can feel out of reach about Zen present in my body in a real way. When we talk about Zazen, it's easy for us to presuppose a difference between Zazen and not Zazen, between being awake and being asleep, between thinking and not thinking. This categorization happens even when we claim we're not doing it. In a real way, this is just an aspect of language and perception, which is why we like to use paradoxes, riddles, and images to help confuse the clarity that our words can appear to uphold. But when we forget that all language, all conversation, all representation is a riddle rather than a fact, it could seem that when we talk about zazen, what we really mean is that inaccessible moment when we're truly severed from the ego, from attachments, and from perception. I think that the use of this privileged moment is important for the dissemination of teaching, but not because it's truly that moment that we're trying to attain. Rather, by talking about the moment of pure awakening, like a riddle, we are actually pointing to the way in which that moment of pure awakening is taking place all the time, regardless of what we're doing, right in the middle of being fast asleep. In this talk, you will have noticed that I have also used the example of particular privileged moments. For Thich Nhat Hanh, it was standing in front of the bookcase in the library, and for me, it was staring out the window in the back seat of my parents' car. Yet in both cases, the solitary event actually revealed itself to be more like a vast series of moments, rippling out, holding us, and guiding us in our ordinary experience of suffering, in our struggle with the unending storm. Even further, the moment itself was something that took place right in the middle of ordinary life. Thich Nhat Hanh was caught up in the world of thinking, perceiving, and categorizing when he had his encounter with the two other beings who had once held his book. I was not trying to have some profound experience of finitude and impermanence when I was staring out the window and mindlessly touching my face. I was caught up, engrossed, and unpracticed. For God's sake, I was a child. And still, this experience of truth took hold of me. This reminds me of a, long, a line from the Song of the Grass Hut, which we chanted tonight that says the vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Like the riddle of language, it is constantly evading us, and yet it is always present. We don't need to do anything to be with this vast inconceivable source. We can't do anything but be with it. Yet it is also always hidden and hiding, always slightly out of view. The Song of the Grass Hut teaches that our desire to meet the undying person in the hut is contingent upon our staying present with the ordinary body we are in here and now. This might mean sometimes that we sit quietly and upright, just sitting, being present in our body and trying not to try, and maybe even sometimes succeeding 
so that the difference between trying and not trying, between succeeding and failing, melts away. Yet, I think that being present in the ordinary body that's here and now means equally that sometimes we walk clumsily, laugh loudly, cry desperately. Only when we can hold this tension can we stay with the non-duality at the heart of our practice. Ultimate reality cuts through the current of each ordinary moment and is here, always present, with us, in the unending, raging storm. In a journal entry he wrote on August 16, 1962, almost two months before his experience in the library, which led to his storm, Thich Nhat Hanh was writing all about storms in another context. Missing his nights in the forest of Vietnam, he recalls the compelling call of the storm that would make him want to leave civilization behind, tear off his clothes, and enter the forest naked. To do what, he says? I didn't know, but I would enter the forest depths, even if wild animals devoured me. I knew I would feel no pain, terror, or regret. I might even enjoy being devoured. I stood at the window for a long time, struggling with the call of the forest and the moon. A few months later in December, when he reflects on the raging storm that followed his experience in the library, Thich Nhat Hanh says that he sees now how we must perish again and again in the storms that make life possible. Having finally understood this truth, he concludes that he would like to, quote, burn down the huts where his friends dwell, because in annihilating his last refuge, his friend would be liberated from the hard shells of a thousand lifetimes. Thich Nhat Hanh says that in that moment, when his friend's last refuge has been annihilated, he will, quote, lose everything. But in the same moment, he possesses everything. Beginning at that moment, we are truly present for each other, unquote. This unending storm, this ordinary experience of suffering, is simultaneously the cyclical repetition of samsara and that which opens us up to the possibility of being transformed. It is precisely old age, sickness, and death, what we often fear and try to avoid the most, that frees us to enter the dark forest naked, to arrive at last as truly present for each other. It is here that we'd like to return our attention to the words of the Song of the Grass Hut, in which we are taught that the middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? The hut perishes again, and again, and again. Yet, if one can accept with compassion this unending death that makes life possible, they may be able to let go of a hundred years and relax completely, even if only for a moment. I want to end this talk with a longer passage about this call of the storm that Thich Nhat Hanh was reflecting on just a few months before his experience in the library. We might reflect while we listen on the question of response and of recognition. How do we respond to the call of the storm? And what does our practice teach us about how to recognize the majesty of the storm in our ordinary, everyday experience? This is the passage. What makes nature's voice so compelling? The call of moon and forest was irresistible. The storms of the monsoon season also <clears throat> called to me. 
Even as a young boy, I've always been enchanted by storms. Thunder rumbled, the black sky sank low, and the first raindrops, large and heavy, spattered on the roof tiles in our village. Gusts of wind banged against the window shutters. When I saw and heard those signs, I was transported to another realm. They were the prelude to a majestic symphony. After a crash of thunder that seemed loud enough to crumble the earth, the rain began to tumble like a waterfall. How could I sit still at such a moment? I ran to the window, threw back the curtains, and pressed my face against the glass. A rake of palms bowed as earth and sky moaned and screeched. The universe shuddered. Large leaves whipped ferociously against the window. Rain pounded down and gushed in the gutters. Birds struggled against the wind that shook silver curtains of rain. In the symphony of the storm, I heard a call from the heart of the cosmos. I wanted to turn into an areca tree or become a branch bending in the wind. I wanted to be a bird testing the strength of its wings against the wind. I wanted to run outside in the rain and scream, dance, whirl around, laugh, and cry. But I didn't dare. I feared my mother's scolding. So instead, I sang for all I was worth. No matter how loud I sang, my voice could not be heard above the roar and crash of the storm. As I sang, my eyes stayed glued to the drama taking place outside the window. My spirit was absorbed by the storm's majesty. I became one with the storm's powerful music, and I felt wonderful. I sang one song after another. When at last the storm subsided, it always seemed so abrupt. I stopped singing. The excitement in my body quieted but I could feel a few tears still clinging to my eyelashes. I still respond to the call of the cosmos, although the way I do so has changed. The call is as clear and compelling as it was many years ago. When I hear it now, I pause, and with all my body, with every atom of my being, every vein, gland, and nerve, I listen with awe, and passion. Imagine someone whose mother has been dead for 10 years. Suddenly, one day, he hears her voice calling to him. That is how I hear, feel when I hear the call of sky and earth. Just yesterday, I knelt by the window to listen to a symphony of rain, earth, forest, and wind. The window was open, and I didn't close it. I just knelt there, my head bowed in respect, and I let the rain drench my head, neck, and robe. I felt so at ease, so complete. Only when I began to shiver from the cold did I stand up and close the window. I changed out of my wet robe and lit a fire while the forest of Medford billowed in the ecstasy of the raging storm. Thank you. Sophia, thank you for uh, excellent moving talk. Uh, 
comments, questions, responses for Sophia, anyone? How do you bottle that lightning and take it into the rest of your life? <laughs> How, what, do you, what do you do with that? Mm. Yeah, I don't know that we do anything with it. I mm. think we just try to recognize it when we can and and forgive ourselves when we can't. But remembering that it's that lightning is always here, even when we're staring at the wall. And it's just a wall, you know. It's um Satisfying answer, probably. I think it's a good one. <laughs> Hi, Sophia. Thank you so much for that talk. Um, I'm not sure if this is a question, but it will start as a comment. I just um, I, I want to appreciate that talk very much, and among other things. I'm thinking about the most recent Nagarjuna reading group meeting that we had. Uh, Nagarjuna's topic was the um, the emptiness of impermanence, the emptiness of birth and death, uh, and it's from it's you know it's so extraordinarily intricate and difficult, and I'm, I'm afraid it was very much over our heads. <laughs> and your talk tonight about ordinary emptiness really really brought that home for me. Um, so I guess I don't really have a question other than I'd love to hear more more of sort of what this phrase ordinary emptiness means for you. When you say emptiness, you said the word interconnectedness. When you say emptiness, are you thinking of interbeing and interconnectedness? And does it also have, you know, does it also have for you the wistfulness of, you know, the emptiness of a, of a campus when everybody's on vacation or something like that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I have to say I was like a little insecure about using the word emptiness because it's the one that came to mind, but I'm so new to this technical language that I was like, surely, I'm sure I'm using this wrong from someone's perspective. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I think for me, when I think about it, I think about emptiness meeting interdependence of like, we have these experiences often by recognizing like chains of interdependence these experiences in which we realize how connected we are to many different things. And then that experience of realizing our interconnection also for me often brings up that, that feeling of the plasticity of those relationships, of the ways that they are just this way right now that they're changing. So I feel like the kind of recognition that it is wistful, that it's changing, it comes with that, that interdependence as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sophia, I have a question about the experience in the backseat of your, of your parents' car. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, was that something that you felt and remembered and continued to remember? Or was it something that came back to you some years later? It's a really good question. I don't think I was conscious of it as a child. I was really conscious as a child of being afraid. Um, and I just, I have such 
so many members. I mean, it was like for my whole family an event because I was constantly asking them these questions too. I wasn't keeping it to myself. Mm. I was like trying to get them to tell me what they thought. Um, and I can't, I honestly can't tell, like tell you why or how that memory came back to me. Um, but it's something that has only like struck me out of like, out of nowhere, not from some, you know, reflection on, on impermanence, but just, you know, those random little events that you remember with such clarity. Um, and I think just over years now, I've like come to realize, wow, that probably did happen around that time that I was so, that I was so contemplating that, um, question so it, it kind of feels out of time i guess is my answer i don't exactly know uh, partly i asked because i had a similarly powerful experience when i was four or five it was not it wasn't unpleasant or uh, about death or anything but it was i don't know anyway it was powerful and luminous but i forgot about it or didn't you know it wasn't it was just ordinary Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if your experience in the back seat of the car was ordinary, but I remembered it strongly years after I'd started sitting and, it, and mm-hmm. how powerful it was. It was fascinating, and I, it makes me think about uh, the need to pay attention. You know, the fact that we have experiences that sometimes we are not aware of, or we don't mm-hmm. heed, mm-hmm. Uh, and that to pay attention so that you don't miss them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was I was preparing for this talk and I was sharing with some friends, they're like, "What are you going to talk about?" And I was telling them I recounted this story, and they they both also had really specific memories of things not in any way connected, but that they connected to my sharing. One of my friends was saying that he was like in kindergarten, and they were going around the room, you know, calling people by their names, and he had this palpable memory of them calling his name and him like having a, an out-of-body experience of being like, wait, is that what I'm called? <laughs> and realizing like, oh, I'm the being or the entity that goes by that name. And he was like five or something. And it, it really, it totally stuck with her. It's just, it was funny how recount, recounting this memory brought up in a lot of different people there. Just ordinary. Yeah. I remember getting obsessed with why do I have five fingers and not six or four? Like, why five? I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, well, thinking back, you go like, well, that was, makes sense, right? Like, why five? Right. Why not? <laughs> you know, like, uh, at the time, you know, four or five, yeah. you, you have this moment. So. <laughs> Sophia, do you know what book Thich Nhat Hanh took out of the library? I, he didn't mention the title of mm-hmm. it. No, I don't think he mentioned it. But no, mm-hmm. do you know? <laughs> I don't know. No. I've never read those journals, so it was really wonderful to hear them, hear about your experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he mentioned. It. I think he just said it was related to my research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neosan has his hand up. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, you're on mute. So. Am I here? I'm here. I'm here. Um, thank you for that talk. Uh, I, I, I was sort of struck by, um, well, there are many striking things about your talk, but in the in the discussion, Taigen mentioning that he had had this, ex, this uh, experience in the same sort of class of experience in your friends. And um, as you we were speaking, I'm, I was very vividly remembering an experience I must have had with a, when I was about three, which I've never forgotten. Um, and I won't, I won't share that now, but, um, it kind of struck me that, you know, we have all the equipment, um, at a very young age to, um, appreciate, um, very deep things. And we don't have, we don't have the sophisticated language. And, uh, and then we get the, you know, then we get the sophisticated, you know, then we get language and then we get more sophisticated language and we, we try to um, express these experiences that we had. And then, then with luck, you know, uh, we start to, I don't think we unlearn the language, but we, um, you know, maybe there's a further progression whereby the language, which arises to facilitate us talking about things and then gets away, then maybe at some point it starts loosening up and we get, and this is part of what practice is, right? So that we can just have the experience without anyway. Mm-hmm. That's all. So thank you for sharing your your experience. It was what beautiful. Thank you. That's it's funny you say that because when I was reflecting with my friends, they were saying to me, "Do you think that this happens, you know, now and just as much as it did then?" And I was saying, "Yeah, I think it does, but I think that." Like I over intellectualize it, I get in my own way, trying to make it philosophical or you know something else, and it, it is harder to, you know, just let it come out of nowhere. And I do think that I was saying that I think practice is what helps us to make yeah. it. Yeah. Get It's also a talk about taking your own experiences seriously, mm. not just relying on the expert Buddhists mm. or the, the teachings. You know that the talk is very much one about relying on that inner experience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's funny because I was, as I was reading it, I hadn't had this thought once writing it, but as I was reading it out loud, I was like, maybe this sounds kind of arrogant to compare my experience to this to this wonderful famous <laughs> Buddhist and then I was like well it didn't occur to me when I was writing it it's just <laughs> maybe that's part of the reason you wrote it so that people could know this right the also for them I do think it's common for children, maybe at that age, three, four, five, to have uh, some, I don't know what to say, luminous or horrible or powerful experience uh, that goes beyond, you know, our idea of ordinary. And and yet, I I love the way you brought that back into the ordinary. And um, anyway, I think it's still possible for children and it's full possible for us to become childlike 
through Sazen, maybe. Thank you. I just want to comment on that. I think that um, I think it has a lot to do with our grasp of language. Mm -hmm. And as children, we are capable of having more experiences than we have words for, and we're used to that. And as adults, we get confined by the idea that words have to describe our experiences. And I think that that's part of what Sazen does, is that it allows us to um, maybe loosen our, our need to hold on to language to describe our experiences so we're having more of them. <laughs> if there are no more comments or reflections or questions, um, we can do the four bodhisattva vows and then have announcements. But Sophia, I want, just wanted to ask, do you have any further comments just experiencing this discussion? Hmm. Just thank you. It's been really, it was really, yeah, beautiful opportunity to write in this mode. I, I write academic work all the time, and that's kind of my only mode most of the time. So it was fun to get to play with kind of some of those things in a different context and get to put myself in the in in the story. So I really am super grateful for your listening and reflections. You're really the writer. Thank you. Thank you for sharing.